0: This is Mark Lieberman, the host of the radio show The World According to Mark from WPvM in Asheville North Carolina and I am proud to have as a guest today on my show uh, Robert Lot, who is an attorney in Cincinnati, Ohio with the law firm of Taft Statinius and Hollister which is a firm that I am um, pretty familiar with from my past career as an attorney. But Robert, I wanna thank you for agreeing to speak uh, to the audience uh, on the show today.
1: Thank you, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Well, I know that you are doing um, what a lot of us are doing, what I'm certainly doing, which is um, home quarantining, I guess, or. Whatever, whatever the right term of art is, we're all trying to keep uh, socially distant, uh, uh, physically distant from others as much as possible, and yet try to carry on a semblance of normal life. Um, right. For me, I guess that's easier because <laughs> my normal life is, um, is more solitary. Uh, you are practicing, as I said in the lead-in, an attorney uh, you've been with for a number of years, primarily specializing in environmental law. And just, just as a lead in, how, how are you handling things now in the face of the pandemic than what you were doing before all this occurred?
1: Well, um, you know, things have really changed, that's for sure. Uh, we're really trying to do as much as we can from home. Um, you know, trying to, to do everything remotely. I've uh, learned how to use Zoom and all kinds of other uh, video conferencing <laughs> uh, devices, so um, um, It's time to adapt, I guess. Yes, and we're
0: all uh, trying to make that leap um, as easily as possible, but uh, right. there's challenges. So <clears throat> um, your an environmental lawyer, I guess it's fair to characterize you as a as a litigator. I don't know how you react to that term, but um, one thing that implies is <clears throat> that your normal practice would be um, research, briefing, and then argumentation ultimately in front of a court. I guess um, the argumentation aspect of it is constrained by the pandemic, and there's probably things the cases that you have pending, which we're going to talk about, that may have been subject
1: to some postponement. Is that what you're presently experiencing? Yeah, in fact, um, you know, I have been at our law firm, Taft, Statinius and Hollister, it's going to be 30 years now. And um, our environmental group, and you're right, I I am part of our environmental um, practice group. Um, That is actually part of our litigation uh, department as well. So, I am um, also a litigator, and you're correct that uh, typically we would be arguing motions in court and filing briefs and getting prepared for trials and things, and, and um, a lot of that has been delayed um, so, you know, with, with the virus. Um, um, schedules are being changed, and the courts are trying to adapt with video conferences and, and such, but... Um, um, trying to keep things moving, um, yet um, you know it's, it's definitely complicated things.
0: Let's talk um, just as an introduction so that folks know why, why we're here. Obviously, um, how I got to know you uh, in a broad scope was I saw the movie Dark Waters, which I think was released uh, towards the end of 2019, November, I believe a movie um, whose star was Mark Ruffalo or is Mark Ruffalo, who um, was, was, you, was depicting you. Um, and that movie was, I think, based uh, in part, uh, or the genesis of it was an article that was written in the New York Times covering, uh, I think, approximately two decades of your legal career, if I'm correct, That involved a lawsuit and following up on uh, a a toxic chemical, and thereafter, uh, I guess your your book, the exposure you recently released, which um, which is more or less, it seemed to me, uh, uh, takes account most of what's depicted in the movie. It goes a little further in certain directions, and that's how. I got to know you, that's how a lot of people have gotten to know you because the movie has uh, done well, I guess, at the box office and um, you've been interviewed and Mark Ruffalo has been interviewed. And from what I gather from reading your book and um, reading some of the things you've written, you're not exactly somebody who one would think would crave the limelight. You didn't start out deciding that you were going to transition your career as a corporate lawyer um to uh books and movie deals and things of that nature you're um you're a regular lawyer and a regular human being
1: but i'd like you to comment on that yourself yeah yeah you know um you're right um you know i'm i'm still practicing um and still litigating and that's really my primary focus um is trying to help our clients and um but it got to a point where, um, you know, doing the movie and doing the book in the documentary as well, The double We Know, really, I, I, I believed was is instrumental in helping uh, the clients and helping address what I view as a massive public health threat that's occurring, not only throughout the United States, but now worldwide. Um, you know, it's, it's, I've worked over 20 years to try to, to raise awareness and help educate folks about um, a particular class of chemicals that I'm sure we'll talk about, PFAS, PFAS. Um, you know, it's taken many, many years to try to, to, to get information out about what those chemicals are, why they're a problem, what we can do about it. Um, and, you know, as we're as I've been trying to get that information out, as, as we've taken cases to trial and made information available to the public through week-long trials, um, it was incredibly frustrating to nevertheless see folks stand up and still say it public, including in front of the U.S. Congress, you know, that, that some of the science simply didn't exist and that certain things never happened. And, Uh, It was incredibly frustrating to see that. And so I wanted to find a way to get this information out to the widest audience we could and help people understand, you know, what these chemicals are, why it's a problem, what can be done about it. Um, And, you know, it it really kind of took off when the New York Times Magazine article came out in 2016, as you mentioned, uh, that really kind of gave a pretty comprehensive history of what was happening. And it was in response to that, Mark Ruffalo saw that article, and he was had been heavily involved in working on water issues, water rights, and he reached out to me. Um, he was surprised, wondering, how did something like this happen? Uh, how was a, a story like this, a con- massive contamination like this occurring in the United States in modern times? And he had never heard of it, and most people had never heard of it. And, you know, what could we do to help bring this story out? And he was really instrumental in putting, you know, this project together to get the movie made, Dark Waters. Um, And I wanted to get as much of the history and background out there and available to people as possible as well. A lot of the detail and the background of how this happened. And so that's why I put the book together, Exposure, you know, so people could see this is how it happened. Um, This is what really happened. This is what we really know. And here's, hopefully, once we know the history, um, we can do things to help make sure it doesn't happen again. So let me um, basically key
0: off of a couple of things you just said, Robert. I was a a corporate lawyer for the bulk of my career. I did spend some time in enforcement matters with the SEC. And I think if you don't mind, it seems to an extent that you're a bit of an idealist. And I don't say that uh, in any way in disrespect, but I looked at um, your background. You went to uh, a very liberal school. Um, you made a decision that, that you, won't, you wanted to learn and you, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a progressive or a Republican or a Democrat. It's just that you, you have had a, sort of an idealist view of the way Things ought to operate, and I would share with you that I that I also had some of that. But we both went to law school, and getting out of law school, we both recognized that um, while it might be a calling and there might be opportunities to do social good, we both had to figure out a way to earn a living. And one of the ways to earn a living is to go with a large, or at least a substantial corporate law firm um, that can pay the bills. And you. You chose that um, as well when you ultimately went with a, I guess it's fair to say, a rather conservative law firm that uh, was mostly in representing companies and corporations and, and worked on the defense side of things. And I guess, and again, I, I don't want to lead you here, obviously, but your sense of things is that if there were laws on the books that were there for a public good, a social good, a legal good, that corporations, in order to minimize their own liability, maybe they wouldn't embrace the idea of um, having to bear down and and be in compliance, but they would recognize the ultimate value of being in compliance, both for the the good and also to uh, limit their liability. And that's how you became comfortable, I guess, in the beginning of working in the environmental law department for um, this rather conservative, mostly corporate-oriented law firm. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, you know, when I first started out after law school, that was back in 1990, um, I really didn't know, you know, what the practice of law was. Um, It really had never had any family members that had worked at a law firm, Um, you know, and so it was all new to me. And you know, one of the courses I know that I was I'd actually had found the most interesting in law school was environmental law. Um, and when I started working at Taft in Cincinnati, um, you know, I saw that they had an environmental group, um, so I asked to be part of that group. And um, really, you know, the, it, it, those were the days back when a lot of what was going on in the environmental world were Superfund cleanups of hazardous toxic waste sites and. So I really sort of um, jumped in, in in back in those days, helping our clients try to figure out, um, you know, who was responsible for cleaning up these sites, which companies sent what waste, and all of that. And, um, you yeah, know, that's really what I spent a lot of my time on. And then it was working, helping these companies get permits and helping them try to figure out which, um, um, you know, what they needed permits for, what was regulated, what wasn't regulated and really learning the the world of environmental law through that process through through the next eight years from 1990 to 1998. I was really trying to understand this world myself Um, and I assumed uh, at that time that pretty much anything that was going to be toxic, harmful, hazardous, dangerous, that those were on lists. You know, we had these, these lists of regulated materials, toxic waste, hazardous waste. And as long as we were dealing with those materials and our clients were making sure that you know, they were complying with those limits, everything was fine. Uh, and it really you know, was an eye-opening experience for me when I started getting involved um, in this lawsuit for the farmer out in West Virginia, you know, which I'm, I know we'll talk about here. That really opened my mind, my, my eyes to realize there was this whole world of unregulated um, toxins and hazards out there that had, that were really um, falling outside that entire scheme, um, and you know, really went, uh, really had forced me to try to, to view this whole whole system in a completely new way, uh, and that's um, what I've been working on since then is just trying to understand. Um, how do things like this happen? How do they fall out of this system? And, you know, how do we, how do we fix this so that these things are regulated? Um, and, you know, I, you, you mentioned, um, you know, being an idealist or, or, or trying to, to find, um, you know, how, how we can make these things better. You know, I, I, I will admit, I still believe that if we can identify, you know, what the problem is, figure out, lay all the facts out, see where the issues are. And once people see the facts, once people see the information, the evidence um, of what's the problem, that we can fix it. Uh, it may take a long time, but um, it can be done. Um, and um, I do believe that. Well, let's talk about, I guess, um, the
0: serendipitous um, seminal event. You got to call in 1998, just to put things in context, here we are in 2020, you had a call in 1998, out of the blue, it would appear, from a farmer in a town that you knew something about, Parkersburg, West Virginia, and he had gotten your name and um, telephone number, I guess, from a relative of yours, and he called you up and was complaining, or at least outlining, that uh, as a farmer, he was seeing his cattle heard decimated, so to speak, from something that he suspected was in
1: the water, in the landfill, whatever. And, you know, describe your reaction to that. Yeah, uh, one day I just, I got a call in my office um, and this gentleman on the other end of the line started uh, rattling on about cows dying on his property. And I had no idea who he was. I'd never spoken to him before. Um, you know, this is not the kind of thing that I was typically dealing with. Um, and I was almost ready to hang up the phone, um, when he mentioned that he had gotten my name, uh, from, through my grandmother. Um, and then I, I stopped and, and kind of paid attention to find out what, what was he talking about? How, how was my grandmother involved in this? And it came, it came to He came to explain that um, he actually lived on property outside of Parkersburg, West Virginia. And that is the town where my mom's entire family had grown up and I had spent a lot of time as a kid uh, for holidays, special occasions, going back and forth to Parkersburg. And this gentleman was having trouble with his cattle dying um, and he couldn't get anybody locally to talk to him about it. And he apparently one day was talking to his neighbor who had just been on the phone with my grandmother, um, bragging about her grandson being an environmental lawyer up in Cincinnati. So um, uh, she, she had passed along my phone number, and um, he had placed the call to me hoping I might be able to help him. So hearing that connection, you know, that this was somebody from my mom's hometown, somebody that was really desperately needing somebody to, to listen to him to help, uh, invited him up. Um, and he came up and, and we sat down and, and looked at what he had. That was, like you say, that was back in October of 98. And that must have been quite a scene.
0: Um, uh, the gentleman obviously was a farmer, um, spoke um, in the dialect that was, um, that's part of the, that, that area. Um, Appalachian, I guess, is one way of describing it uh, and not in any pejorative way. And he came up, and and as I understand it from again the movie and the, and your book, the exposure, uh, he came up with a lot of stuff, a lot of a lot of uh, documentation and videos and so on and so forth, and plopped himself down at your invitation into a conference room, and I guess you probably had another lawyer or two sitting with you, and that's just not the the general corporate um, experience you have in. in in that law firm. So what was that like and how did you yeah. what he provided to you?
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting day and you know you see some of that I think pretty accurately depicted in the movie Dark Waters. Um you know uh, the 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 gentleman who who portrayed uh, Mr. Tenet from West Virginia, the actor Bill Camp did a fantastic job. Because um, we fortunately had videotape of Mr. Tennant, um, he had had his deposition taken, so we had hours of videotape, um, um, you know, and we had his audio tapes as well. So the actor was able to really capture, um, you know, how Mr. Tenet dressed, how he spoke, his mannerisms, um, you know, and they they spent a lot of time talking with the family, with me, with others to to really make sure that this was you know, accurate as accurate as possible, but. You know, and when, when he came up to our offices, um, he was armed with boxes of videotapes. You know, these were the days of camcorders and VHS tapes. So, he had boxes of those black videotapes, boxes of photographs, and um, we went into a conference room and they were able to um, to get out the old uh, VCR and television and started watching these videos, and it was pretty pretty. Um, Pretty powerful stuff. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty dramatic footage that he had taken beginning back in 1995. Because nobody would talk to him, nobody would listen to him, so he started videotaping what he saw. You know, his animals with tumors, wasting away, with blackened teeth, fo- you know, drooling at the mouth, white, white foam in the water they were standing in. Dead deer, dead fish, dead birds. You know, pretty powerful video, including. Um, video of Mr. Tenet himself cutting into these animals and showing what he was seeing inside with these deformed organs and, and you know, rotting teeth. It was um, uh, pretty powerful and, you know, fortunately one of my supervisors, the head of our environmental group at the time, Tom Turp, who Tim Robbins plays in the movie, you know, was was able to be there and able to view these videos as well. So. Um, it was really important to, to, for him to have seen that and, and be able to say, "Yeah, you know, this is this is a problem that we maybe we can help this man." So, all of the evidence, so to speak, that he
0: presented um, in their initial conference displayed graphically the damage, the harm, and of course, um, the farmer himself um, had a pretty good idea that. Uh, this certainly wasn't normal. It didn't result from anything that he personally did or observed. He, he suspected or strongly suspected that um, it was as a result of contamination that was coming from um, a, uh, a factory that was dumping waste into the area. But obviously, again, from a legal perspective, you saw evidence that something was very significantly wrong, but neither you nor um, your ultimate client could point a finger with specificity as to what it was. It could be, it could have been a variety of things. It it probably was not simply chance, but trying to make, um, trying to to basically create a, a case that involves you know the, the ability to persuade not just that there's damage but what the causation is and and then go into all the other legal, what some people think are legal technicalities as proving that there was you know uh, some intent and so on and so forth you didn't have any of that, but you obviously were sufficiently captivated so to speak to want to do more to investigate um, what the cause of 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 the Disease was, or the decimation of of his herd, and the other environmental issues that were that were displayed in the in the graphics. How did you go about that? How did you go about convincing again the firm that this was something that um, you ought to take on? But at that point, I guess it was more in the nature of a liability potential liability case involving one farmer.
1: That's right. You know, when, when we sat down, we watched these videos, looked at the photographs, it was pretty, pretty obvious that there was a major problem there. We could see the white foaming water coming out of the discharge pipe out of a landfill, marked E.I. DuPont Company, um, which was the company that owned the landfill. Um, so it seemed like a pretty straightforward matter. Um, you know, this, this was the world I dealt with. Uh, this was a regulated landfill that had a permit um, that would specify what kind of wastes were allowed and what levels. So, you know, I assumed at the time we'd simply pull the permits for this landfill. We, we would look at the list of chemicals um, and we would see that something was being emitted above its limit, about, above the permit limit. You know, it would be a rather straightforward thing to do. It's the kind of thing we did for our corporate clients. So, you know, at the time we thought this would be a rather straightforward, direct matter for one family. We would simply be able to pull these permits. We would get to the bottom pretty quickly of of what it was that was coming out in this foam, Um, you know, would probably be identified in the permit. Um, So we agreed to take that case on, thinking it was um, it was going to be a rather straightforward thing. But you know, it did not turn out that way. Um, it, It did not end up being something that was easily identified in any permit or any documents we were getting about the land. So my guest
0: is uh, Robert an uh, environmental attorney with uh, Cincinnati law firm of Taft, Titinius and & Hollister. And we're talking about um, sort of a, an unraveling of a case that began um, over two decades ago um, when you got the, a, a telephone call from uh, a farmer who d- described and ultimately displayed a lot of graphic evidence of s- something that went wrong something that went wrong in terms of contamination, getting into the water supply, getting into the area. And as you indicated, uh, based upon your training and doing the work that you've been doing in terms of um, Superfund stuff, Superfund being uh, a body of legislation having to do with um, uh, disposing of or remediating um, known toxic chemicals and the like, you were your training led you to the belief that okay there must be something here that is identifiable by going through the paperwork that gets filed uh, in order to get the permits to discharge waste into the environment but you didn't you didn't find what you were looking for you didn't find anything that was obvious and then again you're you're uh, as as i i'll let you talk but basically your office was flooded with tons and tons of documents, but there, was, there wasn't like a magic key, so to speak. So talk about sort of your detective work that allowed you to ultimately figure out what was going on.
1: Yeah, you know, I started off uh, the, the, the case trying to, to do what we'd normally do, which we went and got the copies of the permits. We went to the state of West Virginia where the landfill was located, got all their documentation about the permit went to the US EPA, got whatever they had, and really nothing was jumping out. Nothing was, was, was jumping out from these permitting materials that would explain the white foam or would explain what we were seeing in the animals. And we eventually then went to DuPont and asked for their documents too about the, the landfill. And, and similarly, didn't get anything that was really explaining what we were seeing. And so I finally uh, said, you know, we, we've really, uh, we, we've gotta go beyond just this permit and just this landfill, and I want to know everything that you're making at your manufacturing plant down the road, where you're generating the waste to send to this landfill. Tell me everything you're making at that plant, and also everything you're sending to this landfill, not just what's on your permit. And at that point, we got some real pushback from the company, DuPont you know, uh, they were saying that this was out of line, we needed to focus on what was regulated, what was was legally um, limited. And we went to court and had to get a court order, you know, to force these documents to be turned over. And we finally got those documents, um, and I had to start pouring through them. And these were the days before things came on disc and electronically, so it was all boxes of paper. So I just sat down and as you see in the movie, Dark Waters, And I try to kind of explain this process in the book too. exposure, you know, just how I would go about doing it, trying to to set these documents up in a chronological form and walk through them all and try to piece together what was going on there. And it was finally going through those materials that we found uh, one day I, I stumbled across a document that mentioned this chemical called APFO or PFOA that had been sent to the landfill. Um, Had no idea what that stuff was. And I went to all of our our books, all of our lists of regulated chemicals, couldn't find any mention of this stuff. Um, And it's at that point, we finally started asking DuPont, hey, what's this stuff, this PFOA? And again, more pushback from the company. We had to go to the court and get another order to force them to turn over the documents about PFOA. And that's when we finally realized we had stumbled on something that went far beyond uh, Mr. Tennant and his property. It was a much bigger, much bigger issue. So, so to put that in
0: a bit of context, again, this PFOA, which is related to a lot of other acronymed types of chemicals, um, that's used in a variety of things. Our listeners will be most resonant with knowing that it is a chemical that's involved in the production of Teflon, a nonstick cooking surface uh, that apparently was invented, if I have it correct, by 3M Corporation and that was licensed or sold all to to DuPont. The the reason that you had trouble finding it and then had trouble inducing DuPont to be more upfront about it was because it was unregulated. which is not to say that it wasn't problematic, as you later ultimately discovered, and ubiquitous, meaning that I think i read somewhere where 97% of the human population on earth probably has ingested some amounts of that, but because nobody in the government had identified this as a chemical compound or substance that required um, much in the way of regulation, which you know in a sort of strange way p- explains in part why it, it was never um outed earlier than when you got involved in in this litigation
1: that's I'm right on that yeah that's that's right you know what what we found is when i started going through these documents from dupont um you're right we I mean, couldn't find it the chemical listed on any of the the regulations the federal rules, identifying hazards, hazardous substances, or the state laws, but when we started going through DuPont's internal documents, what we saw was this was a chemical that had been invented by 3M right after World War II, and 3M had started selling very large quantities of it to DuPont as early as 1951, and so thousands of pounds of this were being shipped down to DuPont's plant along the Ohio River outside of Parkersburg, which happened to be the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility. So thousands and thousands of pounds of this stuff are going down to West Virginia as early as 1951, where it's being used in making Teflon. It's emitted up into the air through the smokestacks, being discharged directly into the Ohio River without any limits of any kind, liquid sludges being dumped into unlined pits all over the property. You may wonder, well, how is that? Why why weren't there rules and regulations? Well, that's decades before the US EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was even formed. US EPA didn't come into existence until 1970. And some of the first federal laws regulating new chemicals coming out onto the market came out in 1976. And they focused primarily on new chemicals coming out after 1976. So what happened with chemicals like this that had already been out there in massive use in in large quantities um, for decades before that? Well, under this federal law called the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TOSCA, it really essentially said, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing here and simplifying it, but it essentially said to the chemical companies that were making or using those chemicals that were already out there, it's up to you to tell the US EPA, if you guys acquire information suggesting that the chemical presents a substantial risk of harm to human health or the environment. In other words, it was up to the companies to alert the EPA if they believed the chemical presented a health threat. Uh, So the EPA really had to rely upon the companies to notify the EPA if the companies thought that their chemicals presented harm and what i was seeing inside the documents was that dupont was finding lots and lots of data showing that there was harm but unfortunately the company kept making the decision that they didn't think it presented harm so never had told the epa interesting so let me stop you for a second so i
0: guess one could say with 2020 hindsight but hopefully one could have said it you know at the time there's a certain naivete in that regulatory scheme that basically had the EPA relying on corporations who obviously had um, a pecuniary or profit-making interest to promote various new discoveries of things that would help uh, sell their their products. But uh, a sense that the EPA was basically saying, look, it's, we already got enough on our plate having to just deal with, um, chemicals that come into being or products that come into being um, since we were, were created and since we had the mandate, we can't, co- we can't cover all that. So we're going to leave it to the corporations to um, raise their hand and say, that these are things we discovered, which again, creates a, a pretty strange conflict that, that a corporation on the one hand would be profiting from having these chemicals out there, but then would um, take the, the the unusual step, perhaps unusual, of saying, by the way, we're, we're using this product. It's in all kinds of things from, you know, fire retardant chemicals to the Teflon um, uh, cooking surfaces and so on and so forth. And, and yet we've also discovered a problem. And, and in effect, that's where reality broke down. There, there was no self-reporting, even though, as you say, there was a lot of information, as you later found out, a lot of information, which pointed out that there were some significant health risks associated with this chemical and its various other family members.
1: Exactly. And in fact, um, when I finally started uncovering all these documents, internal health studies that were really showing what I believe to, to, to indicate a serious public health threat from exposure to these chemicals, I started sending all of that to the US EPA beginning around the year 2001 and um, trying to get that information to the agency. And once the agency finally started getting, getting that information, started having the chance to look at it, they eventually sued DuPont in 2004, saying that the company had violated that law and had withheld information from them that they should have reported. And if that information had been reported to EPA decades earlier, the EPA might have been able to begin regulating this chemical a long time ago. And because the information was withheld, essentially the EPA is now in catch-up mode, trying desperately to get up to speed on what this chemical is and the harms it presents. Well, what happened as a
0: result of the EPA bringing Uh, actions uh, against uh, DuPont and perhaps other, what was the outcome of all that, a settlement?
1: You know, unfortunately, uh, the outcome was the the agency eventually settled its claim with DuPont um, and DuPont ended up paying a penalty, which EPA claimed was the largest penalty in the history, the largest civil administrative penalty in the history of the EPA. That was only sixteen million dollars. Right. And you know, that was a, an amount that really paled in comparison to the amount of money the company was making by using that chemical over the last 40-50 years. So I, tell, I assume that the results of
0: that settlement was 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 public, was made public. And or 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 were there some limitations to that? Because once a government agency settles with, um, with a, a, a company, uh, a, a defendant, um, obviously there could be and there sh- has been both civil and, and, and potentially criminal liability that other actors could have used as a basis for mounting their own private action. So what happened there?
1: Yeah, the settlement was announced in 2005 that was made public And then um, uh, there was also, shortly after that, um, EPA and DuPont announced that um, there would be a phase out of any further manufacture of the chemical in the United States. But unfortunately, it would be over the next 10 years. This announcement came out January of 2006 um, that the manufacturers, (coughs) excuse me, of the chemical would stop the manufacture by the year 2015. So um, they, they paid a penalty and eventually agreed to phase out any further manufacture of that chemical over the next 10 years. And unfortunately what we saw happen was as that chemical got phased out, the company simply switched to very similar replacement chemicals that shared essentially the same type of chemistry were slightly different, um, but were then held out to the public as safe replacements. And unfortunately, we're now seeing the science start to come in on a number of these replacements. For example, DuPont replaced the chemical PFOA with something they're now making in North Carolina called Gen X. And as the science starts coming in on Gen X, uh, the scientific community is very concerned that it presents some of the same toxicities so it's almost like we're starting the whole process all over again. So folks are very concerned about this, this, this concept of simply replacing one bad chemical with another. Uh, I think you may hear it referred to as regrettable substitutions. Um, okay. And now folks are asking that we look at this whole class of chemicals. We don't keep focusing on one just one at a time. Let's look at this whole class of, of PFOS chemicals P-F-A-S, per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, and hopefully address all of them comprehensively, not just one at a time. Well,
0: one of the other characteristics that these substances seem to have in common, which is um, very unfortunate, is that they are um, very stable, that they don't naturally break down or don't break down uh, generally in the environment, and and they accumulate in animals and humans, so if they're if they're there, they're there. They stay around for a long time, and if you ingested it, as most people apparently have, uh, you have it forever. And 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 that's one of the you know the worst aspects, I guess, of this beyond just simply the
1: toxicity. Would you agree? Absolutely, and in fact, that was um, those unique kind of characteristics are. The ones that really most troubled the DuPont scientists, even when they started looking at these chemicals back in the 1960s and 70s, is this you know, these chemicals are completely man-made. They did not exist on the planet prior to World War II. And these these chemicals have this unique chemical bond of carbons attached to fluorine, which, as you indicated, you know, it makes them incredibly stable. They're hard to break down. So once they get emitted out into the environment. They, they do not break down under natural conditions. So they will be there for millions of years. So that's why you hear them referred to now as forever chemicals. Because once they're out there, they virtually are going to be there forever. But they don't just have this ability though to get out and stay in the environment. They get into living things and they stay there and they, and they are incredibly difficult to be eliminated from living things. In humans, for example, If you're exposed to PFOA, it gets into your blood and kind of sticks to the blood where it then circulates throughout your body and it stays there. Your body has a really hard time getting rid of it. Not only does it stay there, it builds up over time. Every little bit that you're exposed to builds up to higher and higher levels. So it's this unique persistence and bioaccumulation aspect of the chemicals combined with toxicity and potential to cause cancer that really concerned even the DuPont scientists internally when they were looking at this data. So I wanna go back to where things ended up with the case that um, first
0: uh, got involved in representing a farmer whose cattle were dying off in large numbers. But I also want to say again, we're dealing with initially, although there's other companies that are now involved in some of the class actions, that um, you've been a, a, a part of bringing uh, and others, I guess. But, you know, DuPont has been uh, a household word in this country for, um, for decades. And um, my having lived in Philadelphia for a long time, uh, the name DuPont comes up uh, with museums and they are huge benefactors in the community. And evidently in um, Parkersburg, West Virginia, uh, they employed a lot of people so they had a they had a quote reputation uh, for doing things that were good in terms of helpful to the community from an economic standpoint, and they obviously, as you as you chronicled and was chronicled in the movie, they knew there were some problems, but there was in effect this loophole because it wasn't a regulated substance, and they didn't um, go out of their way to disclose some of the. Um, you know it's very serious drawbacks obviously the toxic impact of this um and, and i again what i what i got from reading your book was you were you were surprised by um some of the way in which dupont initially handled your getting involved in the case and of course they're a big company and they have a bunch of lawyers and so they did a lot of things that lawyers are sometimes castigated for which is you know, not being responsive to discovery requests and then being over responsive and delivering boxes and boxes of uncataloged documents that it would take a team of folks to get through. And then I think they went after you with a gag order when it, you were going to be um, interviewed or, or um, uh, a presenter before Congress. They did a lot of things that I think you, um, were a bit surprised in terms of their tenacity,
1: even though you had represented a number of
0: corporate clients for years with super fun stuff. Can you talk about that a bit?
1: Yeah. You know, I try to explore sort of what I call almost like the chess game um, in my book exposure, you know, just the, the, the move counter move, you know, as a litigator um, I was familiar with a lot of this. Uh, Obviously the, 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 the way in which discovery is handled by big companies and, and the the how you how sometimes the, the deadlines and the schedules are manipulated. Um, but you know it, it really was taken to another level by the company as far as their attempts to try to keep this information from coming out to the public. You know, it wasn't just through the legal process um, and the attempts to, for as you mentioned, for example, trying to get a gag order to stop me from speaking to the EPA or from making public comments about it. It wasn't just through the court system. You know, the company also had um, PR firms and and you know waged a, a war sort of behind the scenes with the media and trying to make sure information was controlled in how it came out to the public and, um, you know, in following up with newspapers that, that, that dared to publish anything about it and, you know, uh, making arguments that, that, you know, that uh, that was going to be followed up on if they continued to publish that kind of stuff. I mean, and, you know, efforts that were underway to try to, to influence the regulatory process um, and the science as well. So I mean, this this was a war that was waged not just in the courts, um, but also through the through the media, through the manipulation of the media, through what was said to the public, through through the regulatory process, through the scientific process, through the political process, and that's one of, that dynamic that that interplay of all those different systems is something I really try to talk about in the book. It just how difficult it was to to try to really stay on top of all of those different things happening all at the same time. So you had quite um, a challenge, not just in terms of
0: uh, representing uh, the farmer, and you ultimately settled that case when and for how
1: much money? Uh, That Mr. Tennant's case settled in 2001. It was a confidential settlement um, but we were able to resolve his case after I found the documents indicating that not only was, you know, PFOA being sent to the landfill next to his property, but that 7,000 tons of sludge soaked with PFOA had been sent to that landfill. And what does it do when it hits the water? It causes white foam. And we actually had found documents from DuPont where they had been sampling the water going into that creek that Mr. Tennant's cows were drinking from as early as 1990 and had been finding it, um, the chemical in the water at levels way above what their own scientists uh, were saying was appropriate. So once I found that information and saw what was happening to the cows, we were able to settle Mr. Tennant's case. But at that point, um, you know, even though we're able to resolve the case for, for Mr. Tennant and his family, we realized this was, this was something, and Mr. Tennant was adamant about this too. This was an issue that went far beyond his property. This was a chemical we now realized was not just there on that, in that landfill in the sludge, but it had made its way into the drinking water of the entire surrounding community. So we, we then had to deal with the issue of, what do we do knowing about this health threat that nobody else seems to know about? The public didn't know, the government regulators didn't know, and that's what led us to sort of the next phase of this litigation. Which was a class action lawsuit. And that's right.
0: I, and I, wanna, I just want to c- comment. Uh, you were successful in one sense, an important sense, in getting a resolution through settlement avoiding the further s- uh, significant expenses and inconvenience of a, of a trial. It was in DuPont's interest, presumably, to resolve it. Perhaps DuPont thought that that would be the end of it. And it was a confidential settlement in terms of the dollar amounts. There was nothing that required you or your law firm to continue forward with um, with so-called making a federal <laughs> further federal case out of it or going forward with class action. And again, your law firm has a responsibility to all of the partners and associates and folks to, um, to try to conduct its business with paying clients. I'm assuming that your arrangement with uh, the farmer in the case that you were successful was based on a contingent fee arrangement, which meant that the law firm went for years, essentially, without being able to bill uh, for the, the, the services. And, and then here you jump into another, um, uh, a different forum, one that's fraught with all kinds of legal hurdles and so on and so forth. How did you, how were you able to convince them and convince yourself that you needed to go further than that?
1: Yeah, I think it was really just looking at the facts of what we had uncovered and knowing that we were probably the only people outside of DuPont that knew this information and really feeling like we had an obligation to do something about it and, you know, we had uh, you know uncovered a massive public health threat knowing that there were tens of thousands of people that were likely drinking this chemical at levels above levels that the, the chemical company's own scientists were saying was appropriate and nobody really knew you know that the public didn't know this was happening that government agencies didn't know it was happening we had all the documents we had uncovered these documents we we felt that we had an ability to to get this information out and that we had found um, legal uh, basis um, in West Virginia where the the case was was originating to actually get these people some relief under the law. Um, So it was not an easy decision um, to, 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 to move from representing one family to bringing a class action Against you know one of the com- country's biggest chemical companies, that was not an easy decision for the firm, particularly you know to do it on a contingency basis as as you indicated, where you know we had no guarantee that we would ever be paid. But the facts were so bad, and this this was such a a, a health threat that we really believed it was the right thing to do.
0: So you went on with the class action lawsuit and. Um, I, I guess the, the, the terms of the settlement are in the public domain. Uh, at least I read that um, in the, the class action on behalf of 3,500 plaintiffs, there was a monetary settlement of 670 million odd dollars. Is that
1: correct? Well, actually the, the class action we filed in 2001 um, was for medical monitoring, clean water, et cetera. We settled that in 2004 Um, through a process that got everybody clean water and set up a science panel that that then spent the next seven years studying um, and confirming what the health effects of uh, this chemical was in the the drinking water. Um, Once those health effects were confirmed, which happened around 2012, then all of the individuals within the class of some 70,000 people Um, individuals who had these diseases were able to move forward with their own individual cases, and there were about 3,500 of those that were filed between 2013-2014. Those are the ones that then went to trial and that we eventually then settled the 3,500 or so cases in 2017 for about 671 million. So at this point, you mentioned
0: that one of the ways in which companies again, can get around um, chemicals that have been identified as toxic is to develop a sister chemicals, which might have some of the same properties. But is, is the chemical that was responsible for the toxic effects in Parkersburg, is that, is it actually uh, forbidden to use that anymore? Is it, is it off the charts? Or is it just simply something that's still Regulated and potentially still can be produced with in, in some quantities. Where does that stand?
1: Well, yeah, that's that's sort of a, um, a troubling point. Um, even though I think I first asked the U.S. EPA to look into PFOA and set drinking water standards for it back in March of 2001. You know, 19 years ago, that chemical. It's still not federally regulated such that there is any federal drinking water standard it's not listed as a hazardous substance under any federal laws um, The companies voluntarily agreed to phase out manufacture of the chemical in the United States but you know manufacture can continue in other com- other countries um, Some steps have been taken by the EPA to try to prohibit, any new manufacturing of the chemical in the United States. But again, um, you know, it's essentially remains technically unregulated in the US. Uh, most of what's been done to date has been through voluntary phase out programs or voluntary replacement with other chemicals. In fact, people are right now still working on trying to get this chemical regulated at the federal level, get it listed as a hazardous substance, get federal drinking water standards adopted. That has still not happened. And and that's
0: not escaped the notice of European countries or countries across the world, some of whom I think have been more stringent than the United States through the
1: EPA has been. Is that
0: a fair statement?
1: That is correct. Um, in fact, there have been I would say more aggressive efforts taken overseas, particularly in Europe, you know, to try to ban PFOA and related chemicals. There have been treaties um, like the Stockholm Convention and, and others where countries have gotten together to try to make sure that these chemicals are not just um, voluntarily pulled off the market, but, but banned and prohibited from further use. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the United States is not a signatory to some of these treaties. So efforts are, under, are, are definitely moving forward, I think a little more aggressively overseas, um, while we still are grinding through this very slow regulatory process in the US.
0: So let me ask you this, we just have a few minutes and this is a huge subject. The, the chemical is ubiquitous, it's, it's, it's toxic. We don't even know, I guess there's disputes about what level it would be not, not toxic with people taking different sides on that. It's everywhere. And are, Do you have a, a degree of optimism about, about what you've done and what can be done and what will be done given the nature of this animal?
1: I do, and um, you know, it's been really encouraging, I think, to just watch what's happened over the last 12 months. You know, as the movie Dark Waters has come out, as the, as the book has come out, as people are finally starting to talk about not only PFOA, but this broader group of chemicals, the PFAS chemicals, we are seeing for the first time efforts underway to try to get these chemicals regulated in, in the United States, to get them um, restricted, Um, And I'm hoping that people are really inspired when they see the movie and they see what Mr. Tennet did, what Joe Kiger did, what individuals can do when they stand up and say, this is wrong, something needs to change. And, you know, how powerful it can be when a community gets together and takes action and stands up, you know, even against one of the world's biggest corporations, that people can stand up, take action and make you know amazing change it can be done it might take a long time you know here we are in year 22 of this process it may take it may take time but getting information out to people making this information available get, getting the story out there so that people understand how this happened and what we can do to hopefully stop it from ever happening again well robert
0: it's obviously uh, you've been hailed as um, as an amazing person you've received a lot of uh i'm sure you've received a lot of hate man but you've received a lot of compliments for what you've done um and we're all now you know sort of more real we're, we're looking now at the issue of science and how science should play a part we've you you've removed um uh the the notion to to um, people who have listened that the government Takes care of you, or that corporations necessarily take care of you, and I guess you see the call, call your calling now is getting other people more educated. Where do they get more information?
1: Yeah, one of the things that's been going on the last twelve months or so, particularly with the rollout of the film, um, there have been community groups, environmental groups, different um, organizations across the country and across the world that are doing everything they can to get information out to people about where they can find out where these chemicals have been used, what products, what companies are switching away from these products. For example, fightforeverchemicals.com was launched with the movie Dark Waters to try to provide a resource for people that, that are looking for information about how can I avoid these chemicals? What companies can I support that are moving away from them? Different groups like the Environmental Working Group, Green Science Policy Institute, Center for Environmental Health, there are a number of organizations that are that are actively trying to make information available to folks to help provide education and knowledge so that um, people that are that are wanting to help, wanting to, to find a way to stand up and, and, and try to do what they can to, to help us you know, prevent the further use of these chemicals and switch to, to safer alternatives, that hopefully people can, can find that information and take take action. On their own, at an individual level, and it can make a huge difference.
0: Thank you, Robert Ballot. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Very interesting
1: and very illuminating. And people should go out and read the book and see the movie. Thanks again. Thank you so much. It was great talking.